Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unfrozen Episode 1. I'm Dan Safarik. And, and, I'm, and I'm Greg Lindsay. Buongiorno, Dan. Welcome to Unfrozen. <laughs> Here in Venezia is where we start our podcast adventure. It's a beautiful thing, Greg. I'm really happy to be here. This is our fourth attempt to come to Venice in the space of a year and a half. It has been a long time in the making, that is for sure. Um, yes, uh, and it was quite appropriate today as we managed to jaunt around town in advance of the Venice Biennale, which was closed today, to happen upon the Scuolo, uh, which was the uh, dedicated to the patron saint of the plague. Yes, Saint Roche. So the Scuola Grande di Rosso, uh, which we visited. Yes, so they entombed there is the remains of Saint Roche, and we, I think we saw, we saw a reliquary. So there may we may have seen various joints and bones of Saint Roche. But but yes, I, I lost my faith some time ago, having been raised a, a Catholic school altar boy. Um, but even I has uttered a silent prayer today to Saint Roche, like in these times that we are here in Venice, like under his watchfulness. Yeah, um, I, I felt extremely grateful to have to have been there, um, and really just to be here in general, not only uh, in Venice, but hanging with you. We go back a long ways. Um, for the uninformed, which I guess would be virtually everyone, um, Greg and I go back to about 1998. Oh, no, 1996. I would say this is this is a podcast that is 25 years in the making there. Uh, after after my freshman year of college, but but before we get too much of the personal details, I should note if there's anyone for posterity that you know, Unfrozen is going to be a podcast about cities, architecture, two dudes hanging out, maybe other special guest stars. I don't know. This is Dan's show, but but yes, everyone else is doing multiple podcasts during lockdown. We we decided we would do one after lockdown while people are back out in the world because here we are in the Bauer Palazzo here in Venice. Uh, deciding to do a podcast rather than, I don't know, have a spritz outside. But maybe that comes after. But but here we are, 25 years later. Yes, I mean, it's pretty miraculous that um, we've we've gotten to this point. Um, you know, I, I think we've, we've, we've both been through a lot of, uh, shall we say, iterations of journalism, quasi-journalism, architecture, urbanism, uh, I, I would say that you probably gained the upper hand in the sense of you did not have to invest in a, a graduate education in architecture to be considered an expert, at least in urbanism. And I, uh, I applaud you for that. This is why we said that journalism is like the dark side of the forest. Not stronger, but faster, quicker, definitely more prone to anger and hatred. That's all very appropriate of the journalism path to these things, for sure. Yes. And then, you know, the bitterness and resentment comes in from the from the architecture side when you realize that, you know, after you've gone through, you know, three or four years of uh, pre-practice, then you are on the licensure path, which is lined with doorknobs, endless, endless doorknobs, just designing doorknobs forever. And when you realize that that's maybe not the game that you want to be in, considering that the length of your education is concomitant to that of an attorney, but the resulting income is not, then maybe you should choose a different path. Well, uh, well, Dan, I would say, benigning doorknobs here in Venice, I, I feel the, go the ghost of REM is looking down here because 2014 Elements of Architecture was all about the doorknobs. There's an entire display of doorknobs, if I recall correctly. Was was that the show where he had 
reconstructed a sort of balloon frame standard American house? Uh, no, no, I believe that's actually this year. We're going to see that at the USA Pavilion tomorrow with the BNL is open. No, that was the one Ram created the drop ceiling. So you could sort of see. Oh, yes. So you could take, you know, Gothic Venetian architecture at the Giardini and then create, recreate like the shittiest, you know, drop ceiling American office building, building circa 1970 that you could do just simply to be perverse, which is, of course, what Rem is best at doing. Yes. I mean, I, I think we need to, to surface right here that, you know, he does bear a distinct resemblance to Nosferatu. I hadn't been able to make that leap, but but there you go. But I also the thing about elements is like one of my favorite things about architecture, about what architecture is and how it is taught and how it is practiced was you at one of our New Year's Eve parties, I don't know, more than a decade ago with our mutual friend, Eva Hagberg, where she is alumni of an Ivy League architecture school and you are alumni of a Pac-12 architecture school. And I think the way you guys discussed your mutual practices is, you know, do you know what the width of a door should be? She knew the theory of the width of a door, and you knew how to make the width of a door. That's... Yeah, it was definitely coming at it from different perspectives. Although I, th I think we respected each other. Um, yeah, the the the. I mean, the Oregon University of Oregon approach. I went to the the graduate program there um, from two thousand four to two thousand seven. Was very much, you know, this is architecture boot camp, and you're going to know all the header heights of stairs, you're going to memorize how high a door frame is, you're going to memorize all this stuff because we build, we build practical stuff. You know, we're, we're not one of those theoretical schools. Um, I remember the first day, you know, the instructor said, this is architecture boot camp. And I'm thinking like, yeah, everyone kind of is sort of wearing boots in here. I think they're probably going to go out mudding with their, their, you know, custom Jeeps and, uh, you know, maybe do a little mountain climbing, it was definitely a, a, a rustic transition from having come from New York, where I actually lived across the street from Pratt. And I suppose as a you know practical matter of crossing the street, that could have been a place I could have gone, but probably could not have afforded, you know, with the lack of income uh, in, in, in the New York City environment. So, so yeah, I wound up in a, the, the, the green valley of, uh, of architectural futures. And then here we are now, as I say, like this is our this is our second trip to the Biennale for those who are listening. Like this is I like to joke that this is our Biennale brocation that every two years, Dan and I make a habit of coming now. Like, I mean, other other dudes may go on to golf trips or others may have gone. There was a whole wave during the, the glimmers of hot back summer back in the spring where all sorts of dudes made various trips to get together. And Dan and I spent, again, almost oh, more than two years trying to get to Venice for this. For our regularly scheduled BNLA brocation, but um, but it's good to be it's good to be back. It's I mean the feeling I have every city I visit post pandemic is it's still here, like it's still here. Right. It's been restored, life is normalish kind of thing. And even and even and it's even more appropriate in Venice, obviously a city of the plague, a city of like where literally there's memento mori everywhere of contagion. We literally saw, of course, you know, people putting out ca carnival costumes with the plague masks, with the, you know, the herbs in the nose for this. I mean, it's like always stock Venice, which is a whole weird thing, but I don't know. But yes, but it's, it's, it's good to be here. I don't know, Dan, what was, what was your highlights today? We, today was our church's day because like we said, everything was closed today. So we mostly went to churches. Yeah. We, we broke it down like Hozier and I said, Greg, take me to church and he delivered. So um, yeah, we started with the, the extremely Byzantine uh, San Marco Basilica, um, which is, is really, um, you know, it's, it, it's obviously one of the most touristed things in the city, but it's, it's well worth it. Um, it's, it's unusual for 
Venice. Uh, it's it, most of the churches in Venice are Baroque, and this is uh, just an absolute, you know, feast for the eyes of madcap um, high Byzantium. Um, and it, what's funny about it is that it's not only one of the oldest churches in Europe; it's actually a, a quasi facsimile of a of a church that was destroyed in the something like the fifth century in Constantinople, from which most of the relics uh, in the church are stolen, um, or should say borrowed and not returned by the, uh, what was then the Venetian Empire. That's how the Republic rolled back then. Yeah, it was, it's, it's fascinating. So for those of you who have never been to San Marco, the thing that struck me is, so I know, I've been, uh, I've been fortunate enough to visit you know, various German cathedrals. I've been to St. Peter's where the scale in, in the Vatican like disgusted me. It was so huge. It was incomprehensible. Uh, Hagia Sophia like strikes me as the closest analog to San Marco, obviously, but like Hagia Sophia, obviously more ruined after the sieges. And now it's going to be a mosque again, I guess, so much for its museum status. Thank you, Erdogan. Um, but yeah, but the, like the, the thing that boggles your mind when you see San Marco, at least for me, is like everything is gold mosaic. Everything is gold mosaic in there. And like it is an infinite amount of human detail that is paid. Like this is how I feel, of course, about Venice in general why Venice is the most special place on earth in many ways is like it, it represents an accretion of human complexity and detail that can never be replicated again because of modernity and post-modernity and human economics. And it's just breathtaking to see like no one would ever create this again. And so just to see like the tiny mosaic fragments up close is just mind boggling about what level of artisanry over centuries, literally centuries to do that. I don't know. Perhaps these are trite observations, but it is like sort of the thing where like, you know, people are like, oh, all, all, all the traditionalists on Twitter, all like the white crypto white supremacist trads on Twitter who talk about how great Western civilization was like they never acknowledge this point that like human life is simply worth more than it was over centuries of accretion there. And that we expect more out of our time. We would never build San Marco today because no one would give up that much of their lives, multiple lifetimes, multiple family lifetimes to ever build anything like it, which is why we need to preserve it. And speaking of preservation, Dan, what were they putting out in front of the Bauer as we were, uh, as we were coming in to record this? Oh, good point. Well, yes, we, the, the, uh, the uh, extra special elevated walkway that uh, is basically the default emergency reaction of the Venetian authorities to uh, Aqua Alta, which is the high water condition caused by the tidal surge. And of course, you know, it's become worse over the past number of years due to our friend climate change. Uh, and despite the efforts of creating a multi-billion euro um, intervention uh, on the shore, or rather on the barrier reef, um, if you will, of Lido, there's two entrances to the um, to the lagoon, which are protected by what's known as MOSE or MOSE, um, a system that uh, fills with air and brings uh, the gate upwards into a sort of diagonal position to present, prevent the sea from flooding. I'm told that it has been deployed once and it did work, but they're nevertheless preparing for, I wouldn't even say the worst. I would say they're preparing for what is now the typical. Yeah. I mean, king, king ties and everything. So, you know, coming, coming, coming to Venice to be on the front line of the future as well as the past here. But I also love the fact that like, Literally, in addition to learning the Vaporetto route maps and the other maps around the lagoon, there's the emergency elevated walkway uh, map, which literally amounts to a bunch of Italian construction dudes putting down 
scaffolding that's about two feet high and like, you know, carving a route that goes around, you know, the, uh, the Grand Canal. And, um, and I just love that, you know, that it goes right by our hotel because, you know, even, even in Venice, even in our firstest world condition, you, some of us are more first world than others. That's, that's true. That's true. Um, I did notice, as, as you did as well, that the Giardini, which is the location of a good portion of the Biennale, was completely not on the map. So I, I think it's intended to serve the greatest population density, perhaps also the greatest density of tourists, but, um, or it could just be that that's where they know that it's most likely to flood. I don't, I don't know the precise elevations of all the locations within Venice, but I know they're all pretty low. I, I think it would be a great irony on two levels if, number one, if the Giardini is, you know, is the designated wetlands area of, of <laughs> Venice where it's designed to flood and serve its highest and best purpose. And second, it would be really apropos for all of the many, many critics of the Biennale that this is a, a frivolity that we can no longer afford in a climate emergency, among other things. Yeah, but I mean, I think, well, that's that's kind of an interesting point because, I, you know, I, I, I've having gone, you know, through one of the reasons I you know, went to Oregon all those years past was because at that time it was novel, considered novel that you know, green architecture was a pursuit that you could have. Um, and it was one of the few schools that was putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is what we want to do. I remember being with a, um, you know, a very idealistic uh, fellow graduate student who said, you know, I don't think I'm going to get on a plane ever again. You know, it's just too environmentally costly and, you know, my argument to him at that time was, you know, that plane's going to leave with, with or without you, and it's going to be expending that fuel. I mean, it kind of matters if you get on that plane, what you do when you get to the destination. Like, are you going to be, are you going to a stag party? Then yeah, you probably shouldn't get on that plane. Are you going to, you know, attend the architecture biennale and contribute something to the dialogue that we've found is difficult to replace over facilities like Zoom over the course of the pandemic? I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some justification for that. Well, I don't know. Well, that, that raises the question. Is is the Biennale actually a high-minded exercise, particularly the press preview, or is it a stag party for Bjarke Ingels like, and, and <laughs> well, everyone else? I mean, having having been here, you know, in 2014 for the preview week, that was my only previous time. But like, Yes, not not sure the highest and best use of our remaining grams of carbon, to pump, kilograms of carbon to pump into the atmosphere, are to fly people to the Peggy Guggenheim for that. But, but yeah, it is it is of course you know an interesting thing, and it points to like you know the the Biennale. Like it's it's the thing people I think most most people don't realize about being in Venice until you're here is how many architects have active projects, have done renovations. Like the density of, of modern architecture and contemporary architecture on the ground is, we went to a Rem Koolhaas restored mall today. I mean, there you go. And then like, you know, you've got Palazzo Grassi, which is the Tadeo Ando Theater, where I interviewed Hans Ulrich Obris, or he interviewed me back in 2014, uh, where we were like a bunch of coked up champs, like uh, interviewing each other. I'm not sure that was worth the, the kilograms of carbon. But, um, but yeah, but it's, it's fascinating that, you know, because of the architecture being alley, I think all of them are here all, or, or maybe it's just like Venice is Venice. And like, this is the prestige place to be because of the film festival and the greater arch architecture Biennale. But, but yeah, I would, I would argue like in addition to like the classical stuff, maybe this is the highest density of star architect projects of any city in the world. It, it certainly would be the highest per capita yeah. without, without question. I mean, 52,000 people here. Yeah. I mean, unless you count the daytime population of, of tourists, you know, even then I, it's, it's, it's incredibly compact and uh, incredibly mysterious 
and you know it, it is definitely but it's definitely not just a place where you go to admire old things i mean you do but the the fact that the biennale happens here and everyone wants to be here and have this sort of um you know have this sort of dog and pony show is putting it a little too crudely but you know have have a, an exhibition that that addresses newfangled ideas shall we say um kind of suggests a continuity of you know architecture being you know this continuous process that that never ends you know it, and, and i guess there's sort of an, an analogy there too like even though that we look at something like the basilica as a historical thing it is in fact constantly being worked on uh, not just restored but augmented changed um, and the things that we were admiring themselves were accretions onto a church that was already 500 years old so it almost is like Venice is the perfect place to do this. And yet it's so, it's very existence is so liminal. It's just like inches away from sinking into the ocean. And that's, that's a lot of information to collect in one place. You know, it, it's a good, it's a good place to come to think about the issues because they're literally lapping at the shore. That's true. I say our favorite site today is we we climbed we climbed a Campanile on the on, on the island of San Giorgio, and yes, Dan pointed out uh, there. Hey, are those are those gassing flares in the distance? And like literally Mad Max ish, sorry, like Blade Runner ish opening credits of Blade Runner, like gas flares off the you know El Segundo refinery on the far side of the lagoon. And you're right, it, it reminded me of it reminded me of like past trips to Dubai in the sense of like the thing as a journalist I like about Dubai is that unlike say your iPhone, which has, you know, supply chains and labor and all of its obscurity. Like you go to Dubai and like, hey, the guy who's building a skyscraper is a hundred meters from you through a pane of glass in your taxi cab and it's 120 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And all of globalization's paradoxes are compressed into that. And you're right, Venice is sort of similar in that regard here, where we can see past, present, future paradox, climate change, global party elite coming in for the film festival or architecture biennale. And it's all it's all here. And now we're here too. Yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like there's always going to be one more last dance here. You know, it's kind of like um, even even when the you know pandemic was delaying things, it's kind of like, well, I mean, I know Rome is the eternal city, but Venice is kind of like the persistent anti-city that should should never have been built really it's, it's death in venice baby i mean there's a reason we're calling this i'll say official hashtag for this for this tour this podcast is death in venice 2021 hashtag death spelled d-e-t-h like mega death. now see death when i venice. originally thought of it i was thinking it was d-e-f like death jam oh no that's a good one too death in venice is good but no i was thinking like mega death in venice like you know i think that's i think i think i can accept that because i there's there's a there's a little bit of a metallica you know continuum here because you have you have Saint Rocco or Saint Roche, who was the patron saint of the the plague, uh, the plague which makes me think of you know Saint Rock. So then there's Scuola, School of Rock, and then Saint Anger, Metallica, Apocalypse, Master of Puppets. That is are some, you following me here? That is an impressive squaring of the circle. I must confess. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I guess the the Venetian costume is not not really puppets or marionettes, but I, I, I do have a I do have an obligation to the international puppeteering cartel to talk about puppets in every single episode. I, all right, I now know the sponsorship. I look forward to in future episodes where we just do direct call outs to them there. 
Um, I was just going to note that, you know, that the school, uh, like, you know, there was, of course, the David Bowie quote, you know, Tintoretto was a proto rock star. Tintoretto, of course, spent, to my earlier point, 20 years of his life doing 60 plus paintings there. Like, you know, imagine anybody in the international art firm that's spending 20 years doing anything on any single project other than a handful of like landscape artists building cities from scratch in the American West. But, but there you go, you know, like, you know, it'll be interesting to see the next time the art crowd rolls in. I do, I do love that, you know, that you had, that you get the art crowd and architecture crowd in alternate years. And my favorite thing about the art crowd versus this one is that there they bring the collectors. Like there's multiple mega yachts lined up. There only seems to be Roman Abramovich when they actually do the architecture Biennale preview week. But that was the thing that actually blew my mind the first time I went, the first and only time I was there for preview week is that none of the architects brought their clients except really one, uh, Alon Faina, Faina Hotels in Miami and Buenos Aires. Alon was there in 2014 and he definitely brought his patron, Len Blavatnik, the Russian oligarch who, you know, uh, has a school named after him at Oxford, I believe, of governance and many other things, owns owns record labels and, you know, has, has received adversarial profiles by Connie Brock in the New Yorker, that kind of person. But Alon brought him and they were at the Russian pavilion, naturally enough. So, but that was the only case I've ever seen. Like, I, I imagine back in 2014 that, like, I pictured Zaha rolling in, you know, God bless her soul. That Zaha would like roll in with like a pack of Qataris behind her, mm -hmm. like attending to that. You know, they're here. We would see finally all the architects and their patrons. But no, I actually learned this is the place where they show up and basically write to each other an impenetrable jargon in their gallery details. Um, yeah, true enough. And then they and then they actually get the sort of the hoi polloi to, you know, pay for the privilege of witnessing that. Um, that's kind of a neat trick. Um, I mean, to be fair, it's not it's not terribly expensive compared to, you know, the outrageous prices that you pay for everything else in Venice. Um, I mean, it's it's actually a fairly good deal. I mean, as museums go, a single visit to the Metropolitan in New York is over twenty dollars now, right? It's, it's I think that's 30. still free, but you know, it's free if you want to. It's this question of like how much shame they can wring out of you at this point. But hmm. um, but yeah, you're right. But I would say, but Venice is like the inverse of like the old joke about like going to like Buenos Aires, where like you know, once you get there, it's practically free. Like once you get to Venice, it's all practically expensive, ruinously expensive until you actually get to the right. Giardini, I suppose. But um, but it is in that regard. But I mean, the question is, we're, and we're going to see it tomorrow. Obviously, this is the this is the episode recorded in advance of actually visiting, you know, the Biennale. But like, this would be a good question about like the theme is how how will we live together? And you know, it was conceptualized before the pandemic. And and I did a podcast with Hashim Sarkis, the curator, dean of MIT Architecture, uh, this spring when it happened, and he confessed readily, like they could not reprogram the whole Biennale. Like it's still there. Like the pandemic hangs over it, but it's still sort of separate from that, which I think is also like. The problem with these massive festivals, fairs, everything else, the amount of effort it goes into programming and do it and the hours and like, you know, critics, critics who call out like the fact that like that the Biennale couldn't even address its own theme. And um, I think of Monica Bellavan, um, architect, thinker, she wrote, I think, the preface to the Peruvian pavilions catalog where she really sort of excoriated the pandemic on this, like how will we live together however we can, like however is possible in this. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting when we get there tomorrow to see like what's available. And I, and I should say I have a stake in this. I have a, uh, I'm part of a team there with Rafi Siegel and Sarah Williams uh, in the stations, which is sort of like the connective tissue that uh, that Sarkis put together there. So even I don't think we fully grappled with it. We started conceiving that in September 2019, and like we never, you know, we never fully internalized it there. So I think you know it'll it'll be interesting to see it tomorrow because the Biennale is like is sort of like it's responding to a prompt that preceded the world as it is now. And we're gonna read into it themes that we see now, but 
I don't know. I don't. I don't think anyone has all the answers that they should be. Maybe. Maybe you know, twenty twenty three. Dan, we'll have time then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when all of this, and I'm making scare quotes, is over, whatever this is, uh, you know, uh, I. You, it seems like there's an attempt to address the issues, which is really important. Um, you know, I, th- I think architects as as sort of the the door openers, you know, between you know the ideas and the built environment and the reality um, of the the construction world, you know, have to work pretty hard to actually get real ideas into those uh, processes because a lot of times they're just very rote. Um, and we just build whatever the economy requires or the market requires. Um, but there is a certain sort of, I've noticed an interesting sort of crossover between art and architecture biennales recently. Not only that, but a, an explosion of architecture festivals where this used to be really the, the really the only one or the biggest one still is probably the biggest one, but you know, minor cities, you know, in outlying city, you know, countries are now having big architecture and art and urbanism festivals. And I I do find that interesting that um, I don't know if it's just the global need for content or if something real is happening about like, are people engaging more with architects? Is, Is art and architecture crossing over somehow? Because when I went to, for example, the Chicago biennial in the last iteration, it was starting to go on this path of, you know, forgive me, it's very woke, you know, and I'm very sort of tuned into trying to resolve real social problems. And, you know, in a a, a relatively small scale way, you know, and and now it's in this year, it appears to be even more so I haven't visited yet, but but that's a, but that's a great thing. So I I, I want to stop you there because so that's you know, you're, right? you're based in Chicago. I'm I'm going to be in Chicago in October, and I I'm I want to try to see some of the sites there because you know the Chicago Biennial is the ultimate response to this. When they created that, like I think Rahm Emanuel practically said in the statement when he was mayor that like this was a straight up marketing play. There was no major American architecture biennials. This was a tourism draw. And let's face it, like you know the 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 art you know art and architecture are blending over in a biennial form, so they can both like market to luxury brands, like you know like. Rem doing the, the Prada Foundation in Milan and like, you know, and all these sorts of things. You know, every, everybody who's ever graduated from OMA in a certain area, like now era, still wears like head to toe Prada. I've yet to see someone to like really refute that thesis. Um, but, you know, but it was that. And so it was like really the sheen of architecture, halo effects on cities. And like, that's really like, like, like co- photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of Bilbao effects. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said this, yes. I, you know, I recently, recently did a, I recently talked to Iker Gill, who like, you know, is curating Exhibit Columbus which is Columbus, Indiana, which is another sort of like architects, architect theme park, you know, multiple Saarinen's involved there. And, you know, he grew up in Bilbao. And like, he was talking about the fact that like, no one really understood what the Bilbao effect was about. And for listeners who don't know, that was when Gary did the Guggenheim Bilbao in 97, 25 years ago. And like suddenly Bilbao was on the global tourism, luxury, elite map kind of thing. And um, so, you know, so the Chicago Bay kind of started the same way. It was explicitly about bringing tourism there. And I think it's awesome that this year, they they're not even in the Chicago Cultural Foundation. It's all in vacant lots around the around the city, and the curators themselves are calling out the fact that like the reason there's vacant lots is because systemic racism basically caused mass demolition of black communities, and so now they're trying to put in actual installations there. I mean, 
there's sort of the counter to Venice. Venice doesn't even have enough of an organic population left, really, that you could do interventions in Venice that would matter. Like there's True. interventions True. around here, Alejandro Aravena and others, and they, we're going to see some great stuff. But like, you can't really help Venice unless your entire unless your entire project is just to basically elevate the city or <laughs> figure out some sort of climate change. Yeah. A Biennale that builds, you know, beautiful new storm gates would be that. Um, but yeah, but in Chicago and the others, it's 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 been really refreshing to see Chicago like push out of the communities and like let's build infrastructure, the intersection of like that t- cultural tourism episode, but actually giving back to the community. And I think more Biennales should do that, frankly. Yeah, I I mean I do like the idea that like that you know this as you say total marketing concept that was conceived by Mayor One Percent as he was often derided, it has been almost completely turned on its head. Um, I don't necessarily think it will be a huge tourism draw um, because the, the, there are, there, there's, you know, the concept, the, the traditional conception of, of architecture is that you're going to look at, you know, large scale proposals for big projects. And it's pretty much the opposite of that. Um, but it might, might get people who are very interested in this, in the profession to think more carefully about the kind of projects that they choose um, because there is a, there is an, a growing amount of credibility to investing in, in areas that have been disinvested in. Um, and, you know, maybe developers are starting to see that too. I mean, that's obviously the, the critical missing factor is like, will, developers, will they go to this? Will they go to the vacant lots in Englewood and, you know, uh, Lawndale and all those places, you know, and see these sort of, small scale interventions and say, well, actually what I want to do is I want to take that and then scale it up and build affordable housing and build grocery stores and that type of thing. That seems to me to be the the leap that still has to be made. Well, totally. Or even then, I mean, and you know, I mean, the, it'll be interesting to see, well, yeah. Who, I mean, who do we, who do we want to, who do we want to laud here? Like, that's what I think about the Chicago Biennial. Like Chicago has great architect artist practitioners, like, Emmanuel Pratt, Amanda Williams, Theaster Gates, just to choose three black architect practitioners here who've all done great interventions in the community framework there, particularly on the South Side. And, you know, where, of course, they're, you know, the Obama Library is taking parts of a public park to build a massive monument to the former president. And yeah, they're actually involved in that. And I guess it comes back to like a difference between the Chicago Biennial and the, the Venice Biennale, where this is still like global star architecture. And there you have, you know, particularly like all iterations of the Chicago Biennial have featured, you know, those three in various incarnations there in various projects. So, you know, I don't know, I, I, it is interesting. Like, you know, the, the notion of like, can like, you know, Sweetwater Foundation, which is Emmanuel Pratt's one, you know, can it be self-sustaining? Can it like drive the entire change of a neighborhood? Does it have, where does it interfere with market forces? Those are all really interesting questions. But like, but it strikes me as like, you know, if we're gonna pray, you know, if we were here to praise famous men, like, and women, like we, those are the ones we should be praising. And um, I don't know. I, I, that's I guess you know for the for our for our listeners here, like we're here in Venice because we've been trying to get to Venice for two years. But like, really, we need to be in Chicago. Like that's the yeah. is where the real energies are and where really we should be praising. Yeah, I mean, and um, um, you know, to the extent that the that it's possible, although uh, because a lot of these uh, interventions are are outdoors, so uh, not ideal podcasting conditions. Um, field recordings. Field field recordings. Right. I will. I'll. I'll. You know, wear my. Uh, my, my sun shading hat. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it much better that than to have, you know, performative sort of um, 
ideas about saving the world, you know, in a, in a cosseted, you know, guilt environment, as much as I love the Arsenal and I love the Chicago Cultural Center um, as buildings, you know, uh, I think people who want, you know, the, the people who live in the neighborhoods need to feel that people are coming to them, you know, and even if it's just a kind of a questionable piece of art or art doesn't necessarily work as architecture to see that someone came there who is from a, a sort of unimaginable global elite. If you're living in that part of the world, living in that part of the city, uh, just to see someone invest in it and do something quirky and fun and interesting and provocative. I, I hope that that, I hope that they do the, the kind of outreach that's going to be needed to, to bring the community in there and get interested in not only architecture, but just in continuing to advocate for, you know, their own future um, that make them want to stick around, you know, because I mean, that's the biggest problem with those areas isn't necessarily the kind of issues that we tried to attack with urban renewal in the 50s, which was blight, I'm making scare quotes again. Um, but, you know, it was they were actually, you know, down at heels, but relatively thriving, densely populated, ethnic and, you know, African-American and, and other minority neighborhoods that were just bulldozed in favor of these giant projet. Uh, whereas this is more about surgical interventions in areas that people are actively leaving because there's no opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, I hope that, you know, both types of communication happen. You know, the the people who are used to designing for the global elite get out to Englewood and see what is happening there. But also the people in Englewood see this and say, oh, architecture is important. You know, understanding the cycles of development and investment is important. How does this thing, this object relate to that? And that's putting a lot of pressure on that, that little object, you know, whatever it is, if it's a little playground or a sculpture or a, most of these things are not what you might call a full, fully developed building. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's all very good points. And like, you know, we're not in Chicago right now, so we should, we should probably curtail some of this discussion from we actually, that's true. I'm talking about things I haven't yet seen. I know. I I, I, I was thinking this, this is some, this is some of the issues that we try to tackle in my, my Biennale exhibit, uh, open collectives, which is inspired by this idea. You know, Rafi Siegel, who's my friend, who's the team leader in this, who's actually designed kibbutzim in Israel and, you know, and the question we're asking is like, you know, we're 25 years into the internet era. Like, can we actually design a combination of physical social networks, people doing things in a place together, those kinds of interventions and what kind of architecture supports it? And then how do you build digital networks that can actually accentuate that and do that thing? I, I was thinking of it like a Dyson sphere, right? Like how do you, how do you build an architectural intervention where, you know, where you around that close personal human core, you can capture all that energy up close, what kind of structures you need to support that. And then at the very fringes of that, where you capture like just whispers of attention and effort, you know, you can use that and make it productive. And that's that's the kind of thing we're doing. And, and it's interesting, but because you know, the reason this ties back to Chicago is, is that one of the guests that we'll have in Turin later this week, we'll make sure to get her on the show, um, uh, Irene, Irene Lopez de, de Vallejo, I believe. Um, I'm maybe mangling her names here. Um, who is part of uh, distributed cooperatives, discos, where she's at a Bilbao. Everything goes back to Bilbao in the end. And, um, and that's sort of the thinking through. They're trying to think of like basically new cooperative forms 
to actually allow investment in these kinds of communities there? And like, how do you, how do you actually you know, convince people to engage locally? So I don't know. So we're going to have her on hopefully to discuss some of this about like, you know, what are like these new structures and practices and, you know, how does crypto get involved? And I bring this up to bring it back full circle is, is because it was ironic today. The best, the best quip you have, which I can't believe you have not dropped here is like, is like basically, yeah, we're in Venice. Like this was built on Dogecoin. Like, <laughs> like the original, like the original Dogecoin. Like oh, the Doge, Dogecoin. Dogecoin plundered from the Byzantines, captured, like traded with the Ottomans, like all this sort of stuff here. But like, you know, this was the original speculative currencies minted by themselves, tokens minted here in, in Venice here. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I've, I've been thinking about this all day here about like, you know, Venice created its own Dogecoin back in the day. Like what, what are the currencies of the future here that we can, you know, use to capture human effort? I, I don't know. But might be drifting a little bit too much into crypto here. We're getting a little late here in Venice, I should add. <laughs> yes, we are, we are edging upon the, the magic hour of, well, the magic hour being the spritz hour. But being yeah. the spritz hour, we're pat, we're well past sunset, but uh, it's hard to tell from within these confines because the buildings are so close together. Uh, even if you have generous windows that um, open hopper style uh, towards the inside, you are still looking at a wall, um, and that's in a you know that's in a five star hotel in Venice. You know you've really got to pony up to see the canals, but. Um, now I feel like we've diverged a little bit. All right. Well, on that note, let's wrap up. Let's wrap up episode one. I, I was gonna say we're gonna be coming to you all this week from Venice and from Turin. So you know, by the time you listen to this, hopefully we'll have a whole package here of podcasts as we launch the unfrozen cinematic universe here for uh, for Dan. But like, yeah, we've got the Biennale on top for uh, episode two, perhaps even episode three. Then we're hopping a train to Turin to Utopian Hours, which is my friend Luca Ballerini's his own festival of urbanism. This year, the theme is the thousand minute city. So, you know, instead of like, oh, cute 15 minute cities, we'll ride bicycles everywhere. It's like, no, how do we include everyone? So hopefully we're gonna round up some special guest stars while we're in Turin. And, uh, and then we'll see where uh, the podcast takes us, perhaps to Chicago and beyond. So it's good to start this with you, Dan. I am, I am so, excited that we're, we're doing this. You know, I, I, I had a, uh, back in when there was a thing called a blog, ah, yes. a blog, uh, I, I had a blog by this title, which involved, um, quite a lot of, um, well, quite a lot of research and, um, you know, masquerading as a, as a reporter. Um, and, um, I feel like, you know, the free association that, that podcasting allows, you know, um, creates a little bit more runway to test out ideas without having to, you know, create something that is, um, you know, uh, an essay form sort of, uh, you know, you don't have to get to sort of, you know, Michael Sorkin levels in order to, to get an interesting or provocative idea out there, presuming that that's what we're doing. I say now that I'm a Canadian immigrant, I think all the time, like, what would Marshall McLuhan think of this? Like, I think I think I think his whole hot and cool medium kind of off or like it has to be recalibrated. Like television television feels like we're a really hot medium now compared mm-hmm. to all the other media that came since. But like podcast is a pretty cool medium, right? Like it started as hot, but like now we're all just recording podcasts, we're all throwing thoughts out there, running through some machine transcription if you want, if you just want to read it. We have all the tools here. So so yeah, I look forward to further discursive discursive discourse with you. Indeed. Indeed. Let's make it happen. All right, you heard it here first. 